When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with M.V. Hood III and Seth C. McKee. Dr. Hood is a professor of political science and the director of the School for Public and International Affairs Survey Research Center at the University of Georgia. And Dr. McKee is a professor of political science at Oklahoma State University and former editor-in-chief of Political Research Quarterly. Today, we're talking about their recent book, Rural Republican Realignment in the Modern South, The Untold Story, published by the University of South Carolina Press in 2022. As the title suggests, this book traces the process by which rural white Southerners transformed from fiercely loyal Democrats to stalwart Republicans. In this first book-length empirically-based study focusing on rural Southern voters, Hood and McKee argue that the Democratic to Republican transition is both more recent and more durable than most political observers realize. Professors Hood and McKee, welcome to New Books in the American South. Thanks. Thank you. So I'm happy to have you both on here. Um, And as I suggested to you earlier, um, this is the first time I've had two people on at the same time. We were supposed to do something um, with another uh, pair of co-authors last year, but one of them couldn't make it. So it ended up being an individual um, interview. So... um, I'm always intrigued by collaborative work. I'm a historian. Um, Most people I know in the profession are historians, and we don't really collaborate uh, as much as maybe we should. We like to work by ourselves. And so whenever I I hear of academics collaborating, I'm always really interested um, in, in where that collaboration came from. We've got one of you in Oklahoma, one in Georgia. Um, So where did this, this, this union um, originate? Well, uh, I guess I can, kick us off here. Uh, Seth and I met uh, at the Citadel Symposium on Southern Politics, which is held every other year at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. And I would say, maybe contrary to historians, it's pretty prevalent for political scientists to collaborate with each other. So it's, it's very common. Historians just aren't normal people. Well, I, I don't know that I'm normal either, but that's, <laughs> that's normal for political scientists, at least. Gotcha, so. gotcha. So we meet, met at this conference that specifically uh, deals with Southern politics and struck up a friendship and we collaborated on a project and we've been collaborating ever since then. So maybe Seth remembers what year it was. I, I really don't at this point. It was a long time ago. It was 2006 because it was, um, of course, something that I can't get away from is redistricting and, uh, it was a re-redistricting in Georgia in that cycle. And so I knew that Trey 
uh, being at Georgia would have some interest. So it was actually a reception. And I said, I think I got some money for a survey of these voters who might be affected by redistricting. So yeah, it was a little while ago. So. And just out of curiosity, in the writing process, since you all are not very close to each other, um, how did that unfold? Well, we've worked together quite a while, as, as we indicated, and we have a, a pretty good division of labor with the things that we do. And uh, it just it just works out really well is, is the answer. Um, you know, we'll just get on the phone and, and talk things through and say, you do this and I'll do this. And of course, we go back and check each other's stuff. And uh, but again, we've had this division of labor for, for quite a few years now. So. Sure. It's really just my roundabout way of trying to figure out how in the world people collaborate and maybe convince a couple of historians that it's okay to do these things. It, it's fast. It's more, I mean, if you have good co-authors, right, you, there you, go. you can juggle four balls in the air constantly. So that's <laughs> what I like about it. Well, I'll have to keep that in mind when I'm trying to convince someone else who doesn't live in South Florida to 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 collaborate with me uh, in the future. All right, so let's dig into it a little bit. Um, I'm hoping to get just a little bit of context before um, we kind of dive into the meat of the book. Uh, so you suggest that the rural Southern political transition from Democrat to Republican has not been something that many scholars have examined thoroughly, or I, I think more appropriately you say at, at, at the book level. Um, so why do you think this transition hasn't been explored as thoroughly as, as maybe some other issues have in, in political science? Well, I, I guess I'll get started. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, because this is something that political watchers, elected office holders, politicos, uh, social scientists have certainly recognized as going on. Uh, but no one, uh, I think it's still accurate to say this is the only book length treatment of the subject. And so why someone else didn't try to take a bite at the apple before us, I, I really don't know. But uh... yeah, it's it's really weird. I think maybe it's just because it's in plain sight. And so when you think about the history of the South and Southern politics, you always knew those rural whites were sort of the backbone of the Democratic Party. And as time goes on, um, I think some scholars sort of got interested in um, just different angles and aspects of change. And they just never really focused on the obvious, which is sort of weird. But, um, but it is true that, you know, if you think about republicanism in the South, that it, it was not triggered by the rural localities. It was triggered by the metropolitan areas. And mm -hmm. so I think that brought a lot of attention because when you look at change in the South and how dynamic it's been ever since the 1950s, people just say, wow, you know, everything's moving in this Republican direction. And rural whites weren't part of that story for mm -hmm. a long, long time. Yeah. And we can certainly get to that because I, 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 I really appreciate how you all approach the topic of this shift from Democrat to Republican. Oftentimes when when I teach a survey course or something, you just kind of say, you know, then the 60s happened and the civil rights bill and then white Southerners became Dem or I'm sorry, white Democrats became white Republicans. And like, that's where we are. And then after reading this book, I realized I, I am so terribly unnuanced in that interpretation. Uh, perhaps I need to spend a little bit more time on it. But before we get to that, I'm hoping you can just give us um, an idea for people who maybe don't don't know all that well, what what 
the politics in the South looked like, you know, prior to to the last 20 years. For most of the 20th century, rural Southerners in particular, but even the South kind of broadly speaking, were were committed Democrats. Could you could you help us understand where that came from? Why were rural Southerners or Southerners, broadly speaking, um, so loyal to the Democratic Party throughout much of the 20th century? I, I guess Trey's a little slow on the giddy up there, so I'll, I'll start. Um, I'll, let you, I'll let you start this time. I mean, it really does go back to uh, racial politics. And so when you think about uh, historically the Democratic Party, especially after the Civil War, um, and that, that stranglehold, if you will, that, that they eventually got, you know, we call it the Solid South, when you think after the populist revolt of the late uh, or mid-1890s, when you lock down the system and you disenfranchise African-Americans in most localities of the South, uh, the, the Democratic Party was basically synonymous with white supremacy. And so, you know, there's always this tension about, well, you know, is it possible that, that poor rural whites will align with, with Southern Blacks and, and that fear? And of course, populism sort of invoked that, that threat. And so, when you're able to manipulate the electorate and make it so that at least blacks are looked at as second class, then rural whites, the only thing they really sort of had to hold on to was, well, we're considered superior, at least politically. And so you have this long period uh, that goes back to that, that era of the solid South. And, and so there's a sort of ancestral allegiance uh, to the Democratic Party and I think in a way that the New Deal uh, era, if we think about the you know, FDR in the 1930s, that helped, right? It didn't hurt the alignment with the Democratic Party. It actually reinforced it because of the relief programs. You know, most of the money, as Earl Murrow Black, Southern politics scholars would say, is that most of the federal dollars went to the South during the Great Depression. And so they were the beneficiaries of a lot of that money and being of a lower class and lower education, there was no real conflict with having this racial conservatism and being aligned with the Democratic Party for so long. Yeah, I mean, as, as Seth said, it goes back to the really the end of Reconstruction and the reimposition of Democratic control of state governments in the South. And of course, who's in control of the Democratic Party in the South? It's white conservatives, right? So. Um, and again, that lasted up through, you know, really until the early to mid 1960s. You know, there was a, an effective stranglehold on party politics, and that was the Democratic Party. And so, when do you think this commitment began to wane a little bit? You just mentioned up through the 1960s. Um, and why do you think voters began to to question their loyalty to the Democratic Party, kind of broadly speaking? Well, I mean, that's. Uh, I'll sort of give a Cliff Notes version. I mean, that's that's a you know ninety six thousand dollar question or whatever you know. Um, but you know, in the, the mid nineteen sixties, the national parties switched positions on the civil rights issue. Republicans actually became much more conservative nationally, and the Democrats much more liberal. And you had passage of the sixty four Civil Rights Act, the sixty five Voting Rights Act, and that's when you began to see the first migration, the first realignment of Southern white conservatives to the Republican party, and then later white moderates. Um, and so, 
and again, as the book points out, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here, though. Um, you know, one of the last subsets of these groups to realign were rural white Southerners. So that sort of has a geographic component to this last realignment. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, again, I think so many of these rural whites, they just held on to maybe the Democratic label, even if they were voting, especially presidentially for Republicans. I mean, we know that's the case of one of the things we do fairly early in the book is we look at ticket splitting. And and it's very prominent, right, that you see, uh, especially when you get into the 80s, where uh, rural whites, they don't look any different from urban whites when it comes to their presidential voting. But because of the long history of incumbency and having these, these rural Southern Democrats uh, representing these folks, and because they weren't national liberals, they just continued to do so for so long. And so as long as that, that, that wasn't a mismatch in terms of ideology and positioning, you had legions of Southern uh, Democrats who were you know, white and lived in the rural South, and, and they happily voted a Republican top of the ticket and stuck with their, their congressmen and, uh, locally. Uh, and it, didn't, it really wasn't a contradiction until you really pushed out that lower level of Congress uh, people who no longer uh, were, you know, misaligned, if you will, with the national party. Yeah. um, And so, you know, when, when we kind of think about this larger narrative, again, the way that, you know, you present it to, to undergraduates or something like that would be, you've got the 1960s and then you've got the parties that are shifting Republicans, as you suggested, become more conservative and Democrats becoming a little bit more liberal. Um, And, and, what I really like about your book is you you kind of remind everybody that it wasn't quite that straightforward. Um, we're so used to parties today being like, you know, kind of pretty ideologically aligned. But what you all suggest in, in, in the larger book is that there are still factions within the Democratic Party and to an extent the Republican Party, too, um, and not just like super liberal and then kind of liberal, but but very conservative um, and and liberal kind of under that that large umbrella. And that doesn't just cease uh, in 64, 68 um, when, when, you know, Johnson stops running, um, and whatnot. So I really appreciated that. And so this kind of builds into the next question is that you've got this, this larger narrative of regional shift and, and, and parties shifting at the same time. Um, but I wonder why, why you think it's so significant to look at specifically rural Southerners and, and what your exploration into their kind of political realignment helps us understand about this larger shift that I think, I don't know if I could say most people, but at least anybody who's really paid attention over time recognizes that there was a shift in the South from from Democrat to Republican. Um, so what do you think you've really helped us understand more fully by, by, by focusing explicitly on this transition from the perspective of rural Southerners? Well, I think part of what we're doing is just documenting what happened and explaining what happened, which, again, uh, it's not been done to any great extent that we've seen before this book came out. So, again, I'm not saying that, you know, we're first to the party here, but uh, there hasn't been a lot of scholarship on this particular group that we're studying. So that's that's part of it is just to literally document what's going on. And this has been, again, the most recent group that sort of realigned in terms of the Southern Party system. And so. You know, that's another reason we, we sort of emphasize rural white Southerners uh, 
in this book. Yeah, I think um, if you if you consider this transition, I think one of the things we say maybe even in the promo stuff is it's the the longest and deepest realignment. And the reason why is because, you know, these rural white Southerners, they were the slowest to realign. Uh, you know, they're pulling up the rear. It's the urban uh, whites who are sort of leading the way for many of these decades. But when rural white Southerners finally realign to the GOP, they're more calcified and wedded to the party than our urban whites. And so even though if you look at the South and you say, geez, that region is so Republican, when you look at white people, um, it's those rural whites who are the most Republicans. So there's some, you know, there's degrees there. And one of the things that makes that the case is because politicians have catered to that cultural conservatism. And so we kind of end the book with this idea that, you know, who's in charge? Is it really the elites necessarily, or is it really the electorate? Because the rural white Southerner is getting almost exactly what they want when you look at the way politicians are positioning themselves. They're not moderating, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're having these culture wars. And that's something that that rural whites are about. It's not something that urban whites really want to talk about or care about. So um, I think that's a, a real, uh, you know, split or cleavage among whites who are both Republicans is that the, the rural uh, white brand is, is just a lot more on these cultural issues and, and religious issues. Uh, and that's why we see things like Georgia becoming a battleground state where these urban whites, enough of them peel off and join that Democratic coalition to deny uh, Republicans uh, these high-profile contests, Trump losing Georgia in 2020, Warnock holding on against Herschel Walker in 2022. Mm -hmm. So let's dig into this a little bit. I think you make a couple of really interesting distinctions, and we'll get to the ticket-splitting part, because if I'm being honest, that was that was my favorite part of the book, this, this, this larger idea of you know, still identifying as a Democrat, but voting for a Republican president consistently and things like that. But um, I'd like to dig into this idea of, of a difference between rural Southerners and urban Southerners. And, and it's largely in like a political and cultural context that I think we're going to be talking about it. But what was it that first drew, as you suggested, these urban Southerners to the Republican Party um, initially um, that, that, that maybe didn't necessarily appeal to those rural Southerners um, at the same time. So what was that, that, that like first pitch that Republicans made that attracted those urban Southerners? Well, I think if you go back to the 50s, the early 60s, it was an, an economic appeal from the National Republican Party to conservatives who were very pro-business anyway. And you're in a time of, of great flux and change in the region post-World War II, things are exploding economically uh, in, in also in terms of demography within migration and all the rest into the region. And so initially, again, the, the first sort of uh, post-civil uh, rights Republican Party that comes around in the South are in these large urban areas like Dallas and Atlanta, for instance. And it's really an economic appeal initially. Now, later, it becomes an appeal over the race question. Um, so that gets wrapped into this as well. But uh, initially, I think Seth would agree it's an economic appeal. Yeah. Um, there's a book by a guy named Donald Strong that we cite, 1960. So 
So this guy had his, you know, he had his antenna up on this, but he, he showed, he was a, I think he's a University of Alabama professor. And so he wrote this book and it was on urban republicanism, uh, you know, late 1950s, published in 60. And he starts off the book with this discussion of Mountain Brook, Alabama, which is a real upscale part of Birmingham. And he just shows this big shift with these rich white voters in Alabama who are moving Republican uh, in presidential politics. And it really was that economic appeal uh, that, that really set in motion uh, urban Republicanism. And it really persists into the 80s, at least. Um, Earl and Merle Black, the Southern scholars, wrote a book called Politics and Society in the South. And they really emphasize how Reagan Republicanism is really appealing um, to um, you know, the sort of the Southern living crowd, as we, as we write in the end of one of these chapters, right? I mean, this is sort of, you know, th these aren't the, the boys, you know, out there hunting, right? Mm -hmm. th these are the people who are moving into the, the subdivisions. And, and, and so it's not that Reagan didn't try some of the cultural conservatism stuff, but, you know, that was sort of lip service more than anything. It was more about uh, the economy, right? More about, you know, keeping taxes low and you're, you're upwardly mobile, uh, we're the party for you. And so what was it that, that began to draw these rural Southerners to the side of the Republican Party? Um, if, as you suggested, they were initially, I don't know if hesitant is the right word, but at least not, not converted quite as quickly as maybe their urban white counterparts. What was it that began to kind of uh, peel them off from that Democratic brand? Well, there was the economic part of this, but then again, in the mid 1960s, with this switch at the national level on the race question, you know, that was sort of the next thing that that produced a, a realignment another, among another subset of Southerners, white Southerners especially. And so you see the, uh, the, the pretty nascent Republican Party in most states, at least in the South, sort of resurrected is a vehicle that white conservatives could use at that point to sort of counter a liberalizing democratic trend on civil rights on the other side of the aisle. So, yeah, I think um, you know there's a lot that goes on for these decades after the the civil rights uh, you know movement peaks, if you will, and yeah, there really is that movement towards the GOP, especially when you think presidential politics you know which party to vote for if, if you're a rural white and you're conservative on race, which most of them have and continue to be. Um, but there's often things that intervene to keep this movement moving forward. And of course, when you think about the late 1970s and you think about uh, the religious right and you think of Roe v. Wade and you think of these kinds of things, there's a whole other swath uh, of you know rural folks who maybe they're not as concerned about the racial issue, but they're very concerned about the issue of abortion. And so mm -hmm. that's another sort of moment where you're pushing them uh, in the Republican camp. And so do you think it was really the, the Republican Party recognizing that there is both an economic message, um, low taxes, this idea of economic upward mobility, um, that that also combined with this idea of cultural conservatism that they could tap into to start peeling not only those those urban white Southerners, but also those rural white Southerners back from the Democratic Party? 
kind of the melding of those two approaches? Oh, de- definitely. I think Reagan put the entire package together, really, in terms of economic and social conservatism. And something we forget nowadays, the anti-communism measure uh, message as well. You know, we don't, now that the Cold War is over, we don't think about that as much. You know, it's like a distant memory to my students, you know, or they don't, they've read about it in the history book at this point. But he really put all, all of those issue sets together, which was very appealing to, to white Southerners. Although yesterday, I think in the House of Representatives, they just held a, a vote asking people to condemn socialism. And it became this big thing on the Internet where some of the Democrats were like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, there was this back and forth. So maybe we're seeing a resurgence of this kind of Cold War uh, anti-communist rhetoric being used to try to attract people into the Republican Party or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It gets confusing with, with Trump and, uh, you know, being a buddy with Putin and I don't know. For someone who grew up during the Cold War, the last breaths of it, that's just bizarre to me. I can't even understand it. Um, I, he loves strongmen. I guess Trump's always like those those authoritarian figures. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think that if, if you think about political parties, right, they're, they're not necessarily sure what's going to work. But I think if you looked at the South and you looked at urban whites, it's not enough, right? I mean, if you really want to dominate the political scene, how do you appeal to these other whites? And, you know, so when you think about that, it, as long as you're not turning off urban whites, and, and we're starting to see that now. I mean, in our book, I think we make these overtures pretty openly that if you're really catering hard to these rural whites and their cultural conservatism, then some of these urban whites, they're going to peel off. And a lot of these urban whites, they're not native Southerners, right? If you think about the growth areas of the South, these folks come in and they might be Republican, but they're not down with that kind of Republicanism. So the native sort of Republicanism of the South can be a turnoff for many of these people. Someone who lives in Florida, uh, I would maybe push back on that a little bit. It seems like the conservatives moving in here are very much uh, supportive of both the culture war, conservatism, and the economic argument. But that's obviously uh, maybe aberrant to, to the larger trends going on. You know, it's it's funny that you bring that up because Florida very much is aberrant to that trend. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, of the latest stuff, I've been writing maybe separately from Trey. We look at growth in stagnant areas of the South. And Florida sticks out as this outlier where it's very urban and it's very Republican and it's moving in a slightly more Republican direction. And that pattern doesn't look the same in, say, Georgia, right, or, say, Virginia or even North Carolina. And so, yeah, Florida does not look like the rest of of the region. Yeah. um, As someone who lives here, we know we we are. an aberration in in many, many ways. Um, So again, one of the more compelling parts of this was the ticket splitting idea. And I think this really gets to like the crux of a lot of the arguments that you all were making. Um, So again, for those people who don't know, would you maybe explain what ticket splitting is and then um, what this transition to the Republican Party looked like at both the presidential level? um, And then I believe you all look at the Senate races, some House races, and then the state level races as well. Um, So could you maybe tackle that a little bit for us? What what did those trends look like or reveal to you? Well, I mean, uh, splitting a ticket means someone who literally is voting for 
uh, say, a Republican for president and a Democrat for U.S. Senate. You know, you can split your ticket between different offices. And of course, that's possible in the American election system. And so split ticket voting leads to what we call the the split level or alignment or realignment, uh, where things sort of start at the presidential level and trickle down to the Senate, U.S. Senate, uh, gubernatorial elections, congressional elections, and even down, we don't, we don't look at this in the book, but even down to the local level. So, and so, you know, one important point about this is that this realignment among Southern whites and rural areas didn't happen all at once. So it's, it's, it's happening over time. And this is one of the, the ways that it's happening in terms of split ticket voting and the split level realignment that's going on. And so what were some of the differences in the trends that you saw in terms of rural white Southerners supporting certain parties for presidential campaigns and then continuing to support the Democratic Party in these more localized campaigns? Is that the general trend? Yeah, that's yeah. the very that's the very general trend. Um, I mean, what, what you see is, uh, again, it, for Southern rural whites, it starts at the presidential level and filters down. But what you see, if you compare... Uh, rural whites in the South to urban whites is that urban whites have higher levels of Republican, say, presidential voting in the, at the beginning of our time series that we're looking at. And then over time, it's actually the rural whites that that pass in uh, eclipse uh, urban whites in terms of their level of Republican voting at each one of these office holding levels. So that's that's what's been happening. And this has all been we haven't really talked a lot about time, but this is pretty recent. So um, late 1990s, early 2000s, you can begin to see this start to happen in most states. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why that ticket splitting is more prominent among rural whites than urban whites is because of the representation that rural whites are getting. They're still getting these more conservative, at least moderate, but certainly not liberal Democrats who are incumbents and they're tough to beat, right? And strategic politicians don't want to run against incumbents if they can help it. So incumbents stick around as long as they can. So you have this sort of outdated pattern where uh, it makes sense locally. Uh, but in the bigger picture, you just go, what's going on there? And that's why is that you have these more conservative Democrats who hold on longer uh, in those parts of the South, allowing that representation to continue with a mismatched label, if you will, in terms of party. Uh, but the bottom really falls out in 2010. I mean, you want to talk about recent. We cover U.S. House elections in Chapter 7, I believe. And uh, what's really remarkable is everyone talks about, wow, you finally got this realignment down to the congressional level in the 1994 Republican Revolution. But if you really want to see in terms of the percentage of rural constituents represented by de Democrats and Republicans, that split just just completely opens up in the 2010 midterm, the Tea Party wave against Obama. And once that happens, that trend line just continues. And I don't think either one of us knew that was the case until we looked at the data and went, oh my gosh, wow. I mean, you had a lot of Democrats still representing large rural constituencies, many of, you know, with large white populations until 2010. 
So, you know, that was really compelling to me too. Um, I just got, you know, this, this very kind of basic understanding of this transition and you think, okay, there's a conservative Democrat like Strom Thurmond, right? Um, and then he thinks that the democratic party is becoming too liberal and then boom, he, he shifts and he becomes a Republican. But you all suggest that there are actually uh, pretty strong factions of conservative Democrats continuing to run and win and be successful in the South and in the democratic party, uh, into the 1990s and, and into the 2000s. Uh, and so I'm wondering, what was it about about some of these people that were maybe reluctant to give up that Democratic brand, uh, both as, as people running and campaigning, um, and, and, and also those voters who, who were still continuously supportive of the Democrats, um, even though that National Party had seemingly left them behind? Uh, that reminds me of it. I guess. Yeah, well, there's this great line at the beginning of Southern Politics and State and Nation where V.O. Key says, you know, party labels last long after their use. <laughs> and I, I think the South is the greatest example of that, where you have people who say they're Democrats and everything about them, you know, speaks to them, they should be Republicans. And and so that's true about about parties, right? Is it so many people are, are not, uh, they're not quick to change. Um, we could see that right now, right? Where if you look at, say, the Republican Party, the biggest change in American politics right now is what we call the diploma divide, where essentially, if we look at the white electorate, higher educated whites are leaving the Republican Party, lower educated whites are moving into it. And that process has been fairly gradual, too. And obviously, that you know goes right back to our book. I mean, who are the more uh, lower educated uh, voters? They're rural whites versus urban whites. And so that's part of this dynamic. But it's not a fast process. And so a lot of people, you know, individually who you think should make the switch, they're going to be reluctant to do so. And again, when you think about you know, a voter, they don't care that much either, right? I mean, <laughs> they're not a politician. It doesn't matter whether they switch their party or not in the grand scheme of things. I mean, they're, they're not running for office. So the stakes are really low in terms of a voter sort of getting with the program or not. Yeah, and I would just uh, add that, you know, at the office holding level, again, it's these Southern incumbents who are Democrats, but who are moderate to conservative, ideologically speaking, who just hold on and get elected election cycle after election cycle. But when they finally you know, retire or sometimes die in office or leave, they get replaced with someone who matches the district, you know, either a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat, depending on the composition of the district. So it just takes a long time for this process to play out, both at the voter level and at the office holding level. And I'll, I'll also add before I forget this thought that, you know, the, the diploma divide that Seth's talking about is even starker in the South than outside of the South. So that's some of that data we have in the book as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. I need you all to come and talk to my neighbor. We were just talking about how you convince people to switch parties. And she was convinced that if you just demonstrate the value, right? Like, look at, look at all the things that let's say the, the like um, inflation reduction act did for their County. And I was like, I think that's too simplistic. Like you they, they could recognize, yes, like there's a benefit to that thing. I'm still going to vote 
for the party that I have voted for for the last 10 years, right? It's just it's just how they identify in a way that, that you can't necessarily change by simply pointing out these things that may or may not affect them, them personally. So maybe I'll invite you down to LaBelle, Florida, and you can come check them out. Um, okay, so let's let's get, get back to, I think, one of the important reasons that probably drew you to these rural white Southerners in particular, and that is that they, have you suggested at several points in this in this conversation formed the backbone of the Republican Party, uh, particularly in the South. And so what do you think the effects have been or through the book and through your research? What have the effects been on the Republican Party, broadly speaking, um, because of this backbone of support being in the rural South? Or rural area? Well, one of the effects is, you know, the recent reason, <clears throat> excuse me, the recency of this realignment among this group sort of gave the state-level Republican parties a shot in the arm in most cases to sort of keep Republican strength going, you know, in, in the face of some of these other demographic changes that we're seeing, you know, increases in the minority population in a lot of states and migration and things like that. And so it it uh, it's, it's a shot in the arm, but it's not going to last forever because as we talk about in the last chapter of the book, you know, compositionally, this is a group that's in terms of numbers is actually shrinking, right? And we, we, I think everyone almost implicitly knows that rural areas are shrinking and this is no, uh, no different in the South. So, and so this is a demographic group that's realigned very strongly to the Republican party, but is shrinking in terms of numbers relative to uh, urbanites. Yeah, I think, um, I think just the, the tenor and the tone of the Republican Party, especially in the South, is just so much on these culture wars. And and I don't think that's really what urban whites are, are really hung up on. I don't think they care as much about that. Our data would confirm that. I mean, we see significant differences on these culture issues, you know, build the wall, uh, you know, gun rights, abortion, you name it, um, ideology in general. And... Um, and these politicians, they're, they're really catering to that culture war narrative. And I think that's because they know who their strongest supporters are. Um, you can't ever discount intensity. I mean, the Trump phenomenon is just a head scratcher, right? After 2016, either him or his allies, all they do is lose. And yet nobody's willing to cross. And it's, and it's really about that intensity. You know these people aren't going anywhere. And so... I look at Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, sort of the the anti woke governor. We've heard of him here. Yeah, we've heard of him here. Yeah, and it's just, and who's he catering to? I mean, Florida is the most urban state in the South, but his rhetoric doesn't sound so much like an urban area in most of the South. It sounds like what a rural white person wants to hear, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of fascinating because if you think of the power of that voting block. It's clearly reflected in the way Republicans in office present themselves and what they choose to fight about. And as you kind of suggested, Trey, this is this is a demographic disaster kind of waiting to happen, right? As rural areas kind of lose population um, and the Republican Party continues to cater to this population that is declining over time. Uh, the kind of writing is on the wall. Although I feel like we have heard this before from people who were who were 
predicting that the Republican Party was going to fall by the wayside the way it was constructed in 2010 and 2012, right? They they, they had this big reexamination, I think, after Mitt Romney yeah. lost. And yeah. they said, if we don't start attracting and, and, and becoming a more diverse party, we're going to lose. Uh, and I feel like Donald Trump really blew that playbook up a little bit. Um, and for at least for a moment, the Republican Party seemed, seemed to have found another way around, you know, this kind of demographic disaster that they thought was headed their way. So maybe we'll see another uh, dust up like that in the in in the coming years. I'll say this as someone who lives in a rural area, it's not so much that our populations are declining here. I know that's not necessarily a general trend. We're, we're kind of a an exurb from an urban area, um, but our population is actually increasing. Um, but again, a lot of that has to do with the fact that people can live in this kind of suburban rural area and still commute to an urban space. So I don't think it's quite, you know, in Florida, we're weird because our, our, our rural spaces are kind of in the middle, but there's, there's massive cities on either sides of the coast, like an hour away. So it's not quite like Montana rural where, you know, you are hours away uh, from, from a major urban area. Okay, so so let's make some predictions. I'm a historian, so when people ask us to make predictions, we do what Trey just did. And you're like, oh no, we don't want to do that. I can tell you all about the past, but but I don't really like the future. Um, what do you think the future looks like for the Republican Party? Right? Um, it's it's as you said, it's got this backbone of the the rural South. It's it's declining. Um, these culture wars um, are maybe out of sync with with more. Um, more urbanized Americans, um, even if they're they're economically conservative or fiscally conservative, maybe not not as interested in you know the abortion issue um, or things like that or critical race theory, whatever it is, right? Um, what do you think the future looks like in the next next what seven, eight, nine years for the Republican Party? Is there a major shift, or do they just continue to hone in on this this rural Southerner backbone? Well, I, I think uh, I'd be the first to say, and Seth would probably agree with me, that, you know, who knows what's going to happen even in the, the recent future uh, or the, the immediate future, I should say. Um, you know, we've been tracking some other things. Again, this is outside the scope of the book. But, uh, you know, in the last couple of election cycles, we've seen some major shifts in the South among Hispanics in South Florida and South Texas. So, you know, who knows what might happen? And we're not saying that I mean, it is a fact that uh, rural white Southerners are shrinking in terms of population size, but that doesn't mean that necessarily the Republican Party is going to go into, you know, a cardiac arrest or anything anytime soon. So because who knows what else is going to come into play? Um, and we've talked a little bit about Trump, and I'll just say that uh, this was this trend that we're, we're honing in on here in the book was going on before Trump. Now, Trump may have been gasoline on a fire in terms of sort of realigning some of these these laggards that were still in, in rural white South, in the rural white South. But um, he didn't start the trend. So um, so one question I've had, um, it was answered a little bit in Georgia, you know, not that these rural white Southerners were going to switch party affiliations or, or become less Republican, but without Trump on the ticket, would they be less likely to turn out? Well, it doesn't seem to be that case, you know, just judging from, say, the 2020 midterms in Georgia, which were, uh, you know, a very good set of elections for the Republican Party in the state. So, I mean, that's one question I had that maybe has already been answered a little bit in terms of the future from the time we wrote the book. So we've had an election since then. 
So maybe yeah. seeing like split ticket, but almost in the opposite direction that it was in say the sixties and seventies, where maybe some of these Southerners are are voting maybe for a Democratic president, but continuing to support Republicans who are who are farther down the ticket. I was I was talking more about turnout, you know, would these Republicans stay at home and they don't seem to have done that. So that so I was talking more about turnout rather than split ticket voting at that point. So. But I would say, I mean, it's really complicated when you think about it, because Trump galvanizes, you know, this segment of the electorate, uh, especially rural whites, working class whites, maybe not rural areas nationally. And it's just um, it's sort of a double edged sword for the party, because you get these people who want to get out there and support someone like him. And it's a turnoff to a lot of Republicans who otherwise would want to vote Republican. And so when you get a Glenn Youngkin in 2021 for governor and, and you, you got to do this dance where it's sort of like, well, I don't want to piss off Trump uh, because I need his voters. But if you make it pretty clear that you're going to put Trump at arm's length, then those urban whites who might have been voting Democratic, a lot of them will come right back to you. And so there's just such a, a conundrum with the Trump effect in the Republican Party. And so I think maybe post-Trump, right, a lot of these urban whites are going to, you know, want to go back to the party. But what is the consequence? Because Trey's talking about, well, does that turn off rural whites? And it could. And that's why DeSantis looks so powerful is because he might be able to attract more of these urban whites because he's not a lightning rod like Trump. He's not incendiary. But he also plays this, he plays the culture wars game. And so he's sort of perfectly positioned to get more urban whites than Trump would while holding on to rural whites. So maybe that's, you know, best for the party is post-Trump, uh, a DeSantis-like figure. Well, I was going to ask you all to make some predictions for 2024, but maybe you just teased a couple of those. Um, but I... Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, one thing I would say, you know, one wild card right now that we don't know is what's Trump going to do in 2024? I mean, he says he's running, right? He's announced, but uh, is he going to stay in the race? You know, what kind of effect is he going to have if he gets the nomination? So so there's still this Trump wild card. And, and like Seth said, you know, once once Trump is finally out of the political scene, so to speak, you know, things might stabilize after that, but he could be uh, you know, sort of a force that uh, upsets the apple cart again. I mean, depending on what happens. So, so we'll, you know, that's pretty immediate. That's in the next couple of years that we'll see that. Yeah. And I would love to just say, you know, if, if Trump really is running, he, he, he seems like he is <laughs> at least now New Hampshire and South Carolina visits. But I think if DeSantis gets in the race, uh, then Trump's going to have some real problems because when you get down to Florida, which it won't be late in the calendar, I'm sure it will. Florida is usually early in the calendar. Does he really want to get his clock cleaned in Florida um, by DeSantis? And I think that's sort of a calculation he's going to have to make is do we do we bail if, if DeSantis is running strong as Florida approaches? Because what are you going to say that the election was stolen in Florida? I mean, that DeSantis's people rigged it. I mean, it's just, there's got to be a limit at some point. 
I feel like we say that every time. I feel like we say that every time. Well, uh, as a Floridian, we are all very interested to see what the nation reacts to um, when they see Ron DeSantis on the national stage, um, for better or for worse. So we will have to see. So we'll have to have you guys come back on after this 2024 election, and we can we can update. Hey, uh, I, I'll talk. I used to live in Florida. I lived in Florida for for seven eight years. So <laughs> I'm. I, I used to work at South Florida, St. Petersburg. So. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of get what I'm talking about, right? I know. I know that state very well. <laughs> well, um, the book is Rural Republican Realignment in the Modern South, The Untold Story, and it is available now through the University of South Carolina Press. Dr. Hood and Dr. McKee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, very much. And thank you for listening to New Books in the American South. <laughs>